Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast as we continue our series about the kingdom of God. And we're going to continue uh, with, again, the misunderstood gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the this is the second part of this chapter, the misunderstood gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we dive in, before we get into the deep of this wonderful subject, just want to give you guys a reminder, if you haven't done so already, Make sure you head on to thrivingonpurpose.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter so that you may stay uh, up to date with all of our news and updates. This will also enable you to uh, follow this ministry despite all the censorship that's going on. And while you're at it, make sure you check out our unique Kingdom Patriot and Remnant Arising merch, jewelry, and apparel, apparel which I am wearing right now, this wonderful uh, Kingdom Patriot hat. We also have it in white, by the way. And uh, Elizabeth just keeps on adding new products to the shop every week, like great stuff going on there as well. And if you feel led to partner with this teaching ministry, or if you just want to sow a seed to give, you can do so on the website, thrivingonpurpose.com again, and click the give button. And that that will enable you to uh, partake and give and bless this ministry if it has been a blessing to you. Now, I have taken far too much of your time. Let's dive right in to the misunderstood gospel of Jesus Christ, part B. Part A was last week. So the subtitle is Rediscovering the Mission and Purpose of Jesus. And if you have been following this teaching series on the kingdom of God, you uh, know that last week I finished, I finished with a shocker as I ended the teaching with an incredible quote that is shocking, but kind of true. <laughs> quite true, I should say. Uh, I said, as I ended, Christianity is the best religion in the world. What a shame that it has never truly been practiced. And I'm talking, of course, on a grand scale. I know there's uh, some, uh, a lot of, of it has been practiced on a small scale, but not as a whole. And that's what I'm talking about. Now, as we continue Pi, uh, uh, part B of the misunderstood gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to begin with something about the kingdom of God in a book that you may or may not know that is called The Colbrin. The Colbrin. Now, you can find The Colbrin on Amazon. It is a, it's a book. It's kind of like, uh, it's similar to the Bible in the sense that it's a collection of ancient writings. And it's from the Egyptians and the Celts. So there's a part of the Colbrin that is ancient writings from the, by the Egyptians. And there's another part of the Colbrin that was written by the Celts or Celts. I think it's Celts. Yeah. So I'm just going to read to you what the description of this book says on Amazon to put you in context, because I found an incredible uh, nugget that I wanted to share in the book about something that is shared in the Colburn. So on Amazon, they describe, they describe the Colburn as a compilation of ancient writings dating back 3,600 years. This two-part, 11-book secular anthology is nearly as large as the King James Bible. The first six books are called the Egyptian texts, 
and were penned by Egyptian academicians, academicians, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, following the Hebrew Exodus. The last five books are called the Celtic texts, texts and were penned by Celtic priests following the death of Jesus. Now, if you haven't read, if you are not familiar with the Colbrin, if you have never read it, it's a really interesting collection of writings. There's some writings in there that are actually really, really full of wisdom and, and really, really interesting. So it's an interesting read, to say the least. And there are passages even in the Colbrin that are attributed to Jesus himself and some of his teachings. Now, while some of these do align with the Bible, this is my disclaimer, some other writings clearly don't. Nevertheless, there is a passage in the writings of the Colburn that really caught my attention. I believe it to be genuine. That's my personal opinion. It makes me think that Jesus knew the church would get sidetracked from preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, while the Colburn comprises writings outside of the Bible and is not to be put in any way, shape, or form on equal footing with the scriptures that we know and love, I believe this insightful passage is deserving of our careful attention, and I'm going to share it with you. So the passage is taken from, like I said, the Colburn, uh, the Britain book, chapter 3, and here's what it is. It's, it's attributed to Jesus. In this passage, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a woman carrying a jar of good wine. Being careless, she puts the jar down heavily and crashes it. And when she resumes her way, the wine spills out behind her on the road. But she blithely continues on her way, unaware of the spillage. When she enters the house, the master takes the wine jar and finds it empty. The disciples asked what this could mean, and Jesus replied, When you possess the good things of the kingdom of heaven, do not let them slip away. Now, in all honesty, when I first read this passage, I didn't know what to make of it. I had no understanding of its meaning whatsoever. But later that day, as I was pondering this analogy, the, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit gave me the interpretation. As a result, I now believe that this short extra biblical parable really came from the Lord Jesus. Now this, as I said, however, by no means is a full endorsement of the Colburn. I always urge my readers to chew the grass and spit out the hay whenever they do research outside of the accepted scripture. Now, as for the interpretation of this parable, I'm going to share it with you right now. I believe the woman in this passage is the church, the bride of Christ. The wine she is carrying in the jar is the gospel of the kingdom, the central teaching of Jesus. Her crashing of the jar is her neglect 
of the centrality of the kingdom message. Her travel is the way of the church throughout history. Now, when the woman enters the house, that is figurative of when the church is reunited with the bridegroom at the end of the age and enters heaven. The master represents the Lord Jesus. When he finds the jar empty upon inspection, it echoes the rhetorical question of Jesus when he asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? As I said earlier in the book or in these series of teachings, the church dropped the ball early in its history, replacing the full gospel of the kingdom that Jesus taught with the gospel of salvation and eternal life of institutionalized Christianity. We have been carrying a semi-empty jar for some time now. And it needs to change unless we be judged unfavorably by the master of the house. Russian philosopher Nikolai Berdyaev was right when he said, the church is simply the path of history and not the actual kingdom of God. Now, he was talking about the, uh, the organized religion of Christianity known as the church. And I think that's very interesting. Now, what makes the kingdom of God such good news? We're going to examine that right now. Now, we know that Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom during his ministry and even after his resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read, After his suffering, he presented himself to them, the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Even after he rose again for the ensuing 40 days, the kingdom message was the priority of Jesus. So now, let us consider what Jesus' kingdom message and mission entailed, so that we may understand just how good news it really is. So we're going to understand now just how good this good news really is. And before I get started in looking at these points, I'm going to have some water. Number one, firstly, Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the many components of the good news right now, if, you may, if we may, okay? So number one, Jesus came in the flesh. I briefly mentioned in the previous chapter just how crucial this is. According to God's decree in Genesis 26 to 28, man was given authority and dominion to operate in the earth realm. So we can only imagine the tremendous power God brought forth when Christ came in the flesh. He was the Son of God in a human body. Now, as the Word in human form, God had the full authority to act out His will on the earth. This was the culmination of God's 
covenant with man. Heaven's will was brought forth with full force upon the earth in the form of a man, in the form of a kinsman redeemer. Now, the enemy had been foretold of this plan of God in Genesis 3.15. So, forewarned, he repeatedly tried to block this from ever happening. He feared this day. This is why we read in the scripture of how in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, he tried to infiltrate the seed line of man and even the seed line of animals by hybridizing mankind, among other ways, with fallen, uh, fallen angels. Corrupting the seed line of man was a sure way to make human beings into something abominable, corrupt, and more importantly, not 100% human and therefore unredeemable. In Genesis 6-4, if you remember, we read that uh, the sons of God looked at the women, the, the daughters of men, and they found and they took wives from those they chose and they married with them and they had children with them. So there was a hybridization of the sons of God and the sons of men. And no, these were not the sons of Seth, as some have been preaching. These were literally fallen ones. Okay, they were watchers who fell from heaven. It is well recorded in the book of Enoch. I will not go into that, those details right here, but just so you know. Now, these hybrids were not human. They were half, half breeds. They were half human. And therefore, they were unredeemable. This is why God chose Noah for his initial great reset with humanity. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it is written, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, plural. Now, perfect in his generations implies that his seed line had not been corrupted through hybridization. Noah was one of the only remaining 100% pure humans back in the day at that time. Also, in verse 12, we read, God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, the term all flesh had corrupted their way implies more than mere moral corruption. And I know if you've been to Sunday school like I have, you hear that God sent the flood at the day, in the days of Noah because men were doing evil on the earth. They, they, were, they were bad, 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 bad men. So God sent the flood. And that, that's the kiddie story version. But if we understand the full ramifications of what happened in Genesis, God sent the flood uh, in the days of Noah because there was corrupt hybridization taking place to such a degree that in Genesis 6, 9, it says all flesh or is it verse 12? Yeah. Verse 12. Uh, Genesis 6, 12. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So it was not just moral corruption. It was also and mostly physical. Okay. And also, the devil raised enemies and temptations against Israel all throughout the Old Testament to try and to destroy the seed line of man. 
Time and again in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, God's people, were told by God not to intermarry with the people of the surrounding, surrounding nations. These other nations had corrupted their seed line after the flood. This, again, was to keep the seed line through which Jesus, the Messiah, was to come. It was to keep that seed line pure and untainted for the coming of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they were surrounded by enemies constantly. Israel was constantly surrounded by enemies. Now, if Satan could not infiltrate their gene pool, he resorted to attempting genocide against God's people. Now, just think all the ites in the Bible that Israel, and what I mean by ites, I-T-E-S, the ites, that Israel had to wear, to wage war against. We're told that in the Old Testament. So the Hittites the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are listed in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. And let's not forget the Philistines. So all these peoples had corrupted DNA, and they, they were trying to uh, intermix, interbreed, and, and, and confront Israel and try to, to destroy them from the face of the earth. So it was a huge conflict of the ages. Now, also, through Satan, he tried to prevent the coming of, this, of the pure uh, Messiah, the purebred Messiah, through the seed line of man. He tried to commit the cruel murder of the firstborn. You might remember this. It's in, recorded in Matthew. So, through King Herod, the devil tried to put baby Jesus to death prematurely. He wanted to abort God's plan, pun intended. So in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 and 18, we read this horrid event. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This, of course, was the last resort. And it still failed. Despite, well, last resort, the last blown out, full-scale resort. <laughs> Despite centuries of attempts to thwart uh, God's plan, in the fullness of time, Jesus came in the flesh. And like Luke 2.52 says, he grew in wisdom and stature in favor Sorry about that. Something that popped up on the screen. In favor with God and man. So we know that on a full scale, that was Satan's attempt to thwart Jesus' coming in the flesh. Okay. Now that he tried to, to, to break God's plan afterwards, yes, he did. We know of the temptation of Christ. We know also of Gethsemane. We know of uh, many instances where Jesus has been tempted uh, as we are all the, all the, um, every day without ever sinning. So we know that happened. But if we're talking about the coming of Jesus in the flesh, the flesh, that was his last attempt 
at that this coming. So the full force and authority of the kingdom of God came in a human body, the body of Jesus Christ, with human DNA, with full legality. This is so important to understand. And therefore was able to make everything that was wrong right again. To redeem mankind, God needed to be fully and purely human. This was the kickoff of God to usher in the kingdom of God. He needed to be made manifest in the flesh to retake all authority from the enemy. He made himself into a perfect kingdom redeemer, uh, kinsman redeemer, sorry. So the devil and the hordes of hell scream at this very truth because it is what spelled their ultimate defeat. In 1 John 4, verses 2 to 3, the Bible says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. This is such an important truth. There's many people who, who will confess uh, that Jesus was, was awesome, uh, but they do not like confessing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They prefer saying, the, 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 talking about the, the, Christ, the Christocentric spirit or the Christ spirit or the Christ this or the Christ that. But they do not want to mention that the Christ came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ because these are antichrist spirits. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we read this. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, propitiation, propitiation <laughs> sorry about that, for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is all he is able to aid those who are tempted. And we know that Jesus never sinned. And Hebrews 4:15, we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This is this is a tremendous, tremendous kingdom truth that, it, that, that uh, has to do with the, the full gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, the second component of the good news of the kingdom is this. Man has been brought back into full communion and relationship with God through salvation. What used to be something temporary done through the sacrifices of the old Mosaic covenant is now a permanent fixture and privilege in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we are fully reconciled to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to, 20, to 21, we read this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
He and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So since Jesus came, nothing separates us from God except, of course, our own sin and stubbornness when we dare not come to him humbly. Now, before I share with you guys the third component of the good news of the kingdom, I'm just going to have a sip of water. Okay, so we're examining the the components of what makes the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, such good news. Now, we're in the third point. And here's the third component. The good news of the kingdom of God restored man to his rightful place of authority and dominion. And we're going to we're going to talk about that all throughout this series, all throughout the book. I talk about that because it's so important that you get this, that you understand this. Through Christ, God wanted to restore that which was lost in Adam. Now, we learn that man lost his spiritual dominion and authority on the earth when he fell. Well, Jesus brought it back. Just before he gave his, he gave his great commission in Matthew 28, 18, he said this. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Go, therefore. So in other words... If he didn't, if he wasn't given all this authority, he would not be able to say, go, therefore. This is very important. And in Matthew 16, 19, we read this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, we see that man was given back authority on earth. Whatever you bind on earth and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed or bound in heaven. Jesus gave us the keys. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verses 17 to 22, answering those who accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Here's what he said. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will, will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do, by whom do your followers drive them out? Good question. So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides his plunder. In this illustration, Jesus 
is that someone stronger who attacked the strong man, who is the devil, the strong man of the house, and bound him. So we're talking about Satan here, who was bound by Jesus Christ. He took his possessions away, his possessions which are the sons of men living under his jurisdiction since the fall. And after all this, he gave us back the house, which is the full authority in the earth realm. And finally, everything has been restored unto us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we read this. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. One pastor put it this way. He said this. He said, everything is under his feet. And his feet are part of his body. And we, the church, the body of believers, we are the body of Christ. So if everything is under the feet of Christ and we're the body, well, guess what? Everything has been put under us as well through the, the authority of the head whom Jesus Christ is. Number four, let's now consider the fourth component of the good news of the kingdom. And that fourth component is Jesus has given us true and permanent power, power. So we are not powerless anymore. We have the Holy Spirit in permanence. I remember when I was a kid, and that's not in the book, but I'm sharing this because I just thought of it now. When I was a kid, I was a big fan of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And I remember uh, watching a documentary about the making of those action figures and the toy line of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And in that, in that documentary, the makers of these figures were saying that they really wanted young boys to feel empowered because they said, look, when you're a kid, you're weak. You look up to your dad. You feel like he's strong. You always feel like you're not that strong and, and you want to feel powerful. You want to feel strong. So we thought if we created a, a, a man, a he-man, who was really, really muscular and super strong, and he would raise his sword and say, I have the power, we thought that would make little boys go nuts and really want to buy that toy line. Would Guess what? They were right. I mean, the toy line really took off. I remember in the 80s, he-man was huge, and it still is. But in other words, human beings, we... We do feel our powerlessness at times, right? I mean, being human is being frail. Being human is, is failing. Being human is oftentimes feeling powerless. But we are not powerless anymore. We have the Holy Spirit in permanence. Before Jesus Christ came in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not a widespread or permanent gift. Now, scholars' views vary on whether it only resided in a select few or whether it just didn't remain in, permanent, in permanence with them. But suffice it to say that the Spirit of God made himself a lot scarcer than it is now. It is such a tragedy that the church today does not claim the full power given to us 
through the person uh, that um, Francis Chan, uh, the author of Francis Chan, called the forgotten God. The forgotten God. Francis Chan wrote a book about the Holy Spirit, and he called that book, the Holy Spirit, the forgotten God. And I, I think that, unfortunately, it's the case. The Holy Spirit in a lot of denominations is that forgotten facet or person of the Trinity. The failure of today's believers to fully tap into the power of the Holy Spirit is what makes the church today appear like just any other, other religion. I'm talking about it makes the church appear ritualistic, dogmatic, and yes, I'm going to say it, this failure to tap into the full power, the measure of the Holy Ghost that God has given us through Jesus Christ, this failure to really, really tap into this makes the church seem powerless in the eyes of many people. So in the eyes of many, Christianity, or perhaps I should say churchianity, is unappealing. And that has to do with, when people look at it, if, the, if it is not following the full gospel, if it is not really tapping into this power of the Holy Ghost, it looks just like any other dead religion. So that's why churchianity is an unappealing. Now remember, when prompted by the religious leaders, Jesus said this about the kingdom of God in Luke 17, 21. He said, uh, when asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you, within you. And that kingdom, that kingdom within us is manifested through power, the power of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist foretold in Matthew 3.11 of how we would inherit the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he said in John 3.11. He said, as for me, I baptize, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, speaking of Jesus, is mightier than I am. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So it was to be a baptism of fire, a baptism with the Holy Ghost, the fire that, that, uh, that, that not only empowers you, but that burns away all the, uh, the, the, the stuff that, 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 you, that, that is um, excessive, that you don't need to enter the kingdom. So it's a purifying fire, a sanctifying fire. So it's power, but it's also sanctification. And later, this very prophecy of, Bapt of John the Baptist was fulfilled in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, so he's bringing them back to that, to that prophecy. 
but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. That's what, that's what the promise was about. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus understood and knew that for the church to spread, for the church and its message, for the kingdom of God to, to spread, we needed power. Disciples needed power. So he promised them power. And the word power here is from the Greek dunamis, dunamis. This is the same word, dunamis, from whence we derived dynamite. Same root word as dynamite. It means physical force, physical power, might, ability, efficacy, energy. And here's what Jesus meant by this. In Mark 16, verses 15 to 18, we read this. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, again, the gospel of the kingdom, to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We tend to forget that part there. This is very important. The kingdom is very divisive. It, it's, like, it's like a sword. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Now we're talking about the power. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. Remember Paul in, at the end of Acts, Acts chapter, I think, 27, so the viper, he's putting wood in the, he's grabbing wood for the firewood, for a fire, and there's a viper that attaches itself to Paul, and he, and he shakes it off. Okay? They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. At all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. All these signs are power signs. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, he said, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Again, power. It takes power to, to command a mountain to move, right? And it's done through his spirit. And it's done through the acceptance and the belief, the trust in the full gospel of the kingdom. In John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, we read, Very truly, these are the words of Jesus, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And Paul, sorry, Paul reminded his young apprentice in 2 Timothy, I'm talking about Timothy here, 2 Timothy 1.7, 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but again, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7. See, the reason most believers do not experience these things is because of a very destructive doctrine taught by many prominent evangelical leaders today. And that very dangerous and destructive doctrine is cessationism. Cessationism. Now, cessationism is the false and destructive doctrine that spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts of power, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, casting out of the the, uh, devils, miracles, They believe that these have ceased, hence the word cessationism, with the apostolic age, with the times of the apostles. This is not only gravely erroneous and unbiblical, but it renders believers impotent in the kingdom of God and therefore makes them seem like everyone else. It makes the kingdom of God appear bland and powerless. In turn, it makes those who might have otherwise sought out the kingdom uninterested. Because when people get healed, when demons get cast out, when signs and wonders follow the church, guess what? People get saved. They get interested. They get fascinated. They get ignited. They get really, really curious about, hey, what's going on here? And they get saved. And the worst part is that these churches who embrace cessationism teach that this is completely normal. They teach that the miraculous signs were for a season only, only for the beginnings of the church to authentify the apostles back then to give the church a a kickoff, if you will. Now, cessationism, in my opinion, is one of the most destructive doctrines in churches today. And dare I say it, I believe it is a doctrine of demons, as it does serve their purposes so well by enforcing religion over kingdom. I said it. I believe it's a doctrine of demons. Here's what cessationism breeds. It breeds religiosity. It breeds backslidden believers. Guess what? I've been in many denominations in my lifetime. But nowhere have I seen more backslidden believers than in uh, denominations that taught cessationism. It's true. It also breeds an orphan spirit. It also breeds, and this is big, a lot of atheists and agnostics. Because guess what? A powerless church is a church that people don't believe in. And it gives a picture of a God in whom they don't want to believe either. It is basically what 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 says, that it's having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Again, that word, power. 
Now, I have often, if you listen to the Thriving on Purpose broadcast, you've heard me say this many times. I've I've often taught people that if they are in a church that teaches cessationism, they need to drop that church like a bad habit. I don't care how many family members you have there, how many friends you have there. If you're in a church that's, that teaches that, you need to drop that church like a bad habit. They need to get out of there. You need to get out of there fast. And I'm sorry, but it's true. And I'm sorry if it applies to you. And I'm sorry if this offends you, but it's true. Now, most cessationist churches do not experience the full power of God because guess what? It's very simple math. Because they do not believe in the full power of God. It's that simple. They don't experience it, they don't experience it because they don't believe it. Now, Jesus told the blind men in Matthew 9.29, It will be done to you according to your faith. It will be done to you according to your faith. Well, guess what? If you do not believe the word of God concerning what you were given through the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about all these things, all these signs that we went through, uh, that we looked at the list, you know, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. Guess what? If you don't believe in those things, guess what? You will not experience them. Simple as that. It shall be done to you according to your faith. Okay, now the fifth component of the good news of the kingdom is this. The fifth component is that the good news of the kingdom has given us access to God's infinite riches, both spiritual and, yes, physical. Now, in Luke 4.18 and in Matthew 11.4, Jesus said that he was anointed to preach the good news to the poor. To preach the good news to the poor. Although in some places the word poor may refer to the poor in spirit, such as in the Sermon on the Mount, his good news was also for the physically and financially poor. Now, Jesus confirmed this when he multiplied bread for the masses, and he did that more than once. This was the symbol it was a symbol of the good news for the poor. This abundance was a physical symbol of this good news for the poor. Now, the good news of the kingdom was first preached to the poor. And why is that? Why is that? Because it's actually great news for the poor. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told believers that the way to obtain their necessities was to be different under kingdom jurisdiction. This is very important. And it's one of my favorite, uh, favorite passages in the whole Bible. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33, here's what Jesus said. He said, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first what? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? And all these things shall be added to you. All the necessities of life. All the things that 
determine if a person is poor or not. That line, that, that line. Well, guess what? If you don't have food, clothing, and shelter, you're poor. But if these needs are met, you're okay. Right? Am I right? This is why the kingdom of God is such good news for the poor. Okay? And in Philippians 4.19, uh, again, an another favorite verse for many, including myself, we read this. My God, Paul says, my God. He says to the Philippians, because you gave, because you looked after my need, because you were generous, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So as kingdom citizens, we have access to kingdom provision, blessings, and an and in sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. I have, a, I have a French thing going on. I have a hard time pronouncing my words. And an inheritance of our God and Father, the King of heaven and earth. This is who we are inheriting from in the kingdom of God. So, the God who told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 15, this is very important. The God who told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 15 that there should be no poor among you, and that's in verse 4, he says this to his people. God says to his people, in Deuteronomy 15, 4, there should be no poor among you. He also promised in 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to what? To life and godliness. In other words, God is looking after your sanctification and your holiness, your godliness, but also after your life. He's provided all things that you need for your life. Glory to God. Thank you, Lord. So the word says here, says all things, all things. All we have to do is ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. Remember, Jesus said in John 16, verses 23 and 24, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, he said. And you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Thank you, Lord. Your joy will be complete. If you ask, it will be given to you. Ask in my name, he said, and it will be given to you. Why? Because your joy. God wants you to have joy, which is so much more than just happiness, because it's, an, uh, it's a long-term abiding thing. Now, God whose riches are unlimited, will not withhold anything good from his children, provided we ask in faith and according to his will. So when I said that Christ restored the kingdom unto us and that it changed everything, I meant it. When Christ restored the kingdom unto us, it changed everything. For most of you, there is only one thing standing in the way of 
all that the Father in heaven has in store for you. Do you know what that one thing is? There's just one thing that's standing in the way of everything that, that God has for you. And that one thing, dear friend, is yourself. And it's myself. Me too. Me too. In other words, our lack of mustard seed faith is the one thing that is standing in the way of all the Father has for us. All the deliverance and all the providence that God has reestablished in this new covenant we're in is now available to those who believe. The problem is most do not believe. Many of us lack faith one way or another. Now, we call ourselves believers, but what do we really believe? Right? It's pretty cute to call ourselves believers, but a lot of us struggle with faith, and I include myself in that. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones here, okay? Ask yourselves these questions. Do we believe in the promises of God? Do we really believe in the promises of God? Do we really believe in the word of God? Right? And most of all, do we really believe that God, our Father in heaven, is good? Do we really believe that God is good? Now we're getting on to something that's really, really powerful. We're reaching about midway through Kingdom Fundamentals. And this, dear friends, will be the subject of the next chapter that we're going to look at in this study of Kingdom Fundamentals. Kingdom Fundamentals. Now, if you have bought the book and you're following this study that I do here every week now, and that book has blessed you. Well, then, guess what? One of the best ways you can thank this ministry that I'm doing, this teaching that I'm giving you right now, one of the best ways you can thank me for it is by just heading on, heading your way to Amazon.com where you got the book and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to thank me and to thank the, the series of teaching and to show your appreciation. It is. It really is. So I encourage you to leave a review if the book has blessed you. Now, if you don't have the book, now that's a, an entire uh, a whole other story. If you don't have the book and you're following these teachings and you're like, man, I love these teachings. Guess what? I believe that uh, reading something and hearing it are two very powerful ways to combine it into a powerful um, when we, re you know how we, we learn differently, right? When we learn through visual means, when we watch a video, we learn a certain way and we remember certain things. But when we read certain, uh, when we read a book, we learn visually and our, our, our visual memory kicks in and we, we remember other parts. And when these two things are combined, well, guess what? It's the best of both worlds. So it's the best way to basically dive in deep to the fundamentals of the kingdom of God. But in the next chapter, so I, now this completes, by the way, the chapter uh, titled The Misunderstood Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
but the next chapter is the one that I call central to the kingdom of God, and it's titled, God is Good All the Time. God is Good All the Time. And we're going to re-examine the love of God and reacquaint ourselves with what that exactly, what, what is the love of God? What does it mean? How central is it to kingdom understanding? And as you will see, it is super central. It couldn't be more central. You cannot live a kingdom life and fully live out and ex live out the kingdom of God and be a kingdom expander and a kingdom uh, ambassador if you do not understand and embrace the love of God. And we're going to see why that is next week as we continue. Okay, we're going to look at... Uh, all kinds of stuff. I, I, I'm not going to say more. We're going to look at all kinds of stuff as we dive deep into uh, the love of the Father. So, guys, I hope this has blessed you tonight. If it has, make sure you click like on this video and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Make sure you share it with your friends, loved ones, and whatever other platforms that you find could actually bless people with it. I will see you next week, and I pray that you are blessed and that you keep on thriving. See you next time.